When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Welcome to the Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson. Today, I'll be talking with Jim Davis, the founder of The Good Athlete Project. You can learn more about The Good Athlete Project by listening to this podcast and also looking at his website, which is goodathleteproject.com. He also has a podcast called The Good Athlete Project. I was introduced to Jim by a previous guest on the show, and he is doing really cool work um, trying to connect neuroscience and what we know about the brain and how we learn and how we grow and develop and sports and athletics and how we can use what we know about brain development to help tap into sort of the untapped potential of sports. And he goes and talks to teams and athletes about what they're doing in the realm of athletics and what they can use that for to grow as a leader, to grow as a person. So I'm really excited to talk to Jim, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yep, happy to. Thank you. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about how the Good Athlete Project got going. What was the light bulb moment in your mind? that gave you this idea to use athletics and sports as a way to help people develop? Where, where did this come from? Yeah, well, uh, it's funny that you use the term light bulb moment because it really did feel like that to me. Um, maybe, actually, you know what, I should come at that from both angles. So so one thing when we talk about the Gaddafi Project, one thing that I recognize is that I've probably been working on it my whole life mm. in one way or other. I played I played sports my entire life. I played 18 seasons of football at a variety of levels, and um, and I've coached for like what is now, I guess, this is kind of scary to say, but like two decades almost. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me old in some ways, I guess. But anyways, the sports and coaching and um, constantly evaluating methods and the psychology that goes into this incredible platform, uh, educational platform that is athletics. Uh, I, I think I've been tinkering it, tinkering with it subconsciously for my entire life. But there did seem to be a light bulb moment at a place that you and I both know very well, um, 
when I went to, I went to grad school at uh, Harvard and got my master's in human development and psychology. And I had a very special focus in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, and it was probably a month or two into my first term out there. I was sitting in Todd Rose's educational neuroscience class, and we were going over uh, att the attention networks of the brain, attention and retention. So like what makes the brain perk up and, 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 and really kind of pay attention, and then what makes it retain the information it just observed? Um, what systems of the brain and the environment lend themselves to that? And if we could, if we could kind of encapsulate that, wouldn't we then be able to create sort of the ideal learning environment? And the light bulb moment came when, you know, just kind of looking at my notes, recognizing, now I had a very specific filter to the, to this information, but um, recognizing that, you know, these things like novelty and uh, all these really compelling group dynamics, something called exercise-induced neural enhancement, so changes in brain state, state due to movement, um, these uh, powerful sort of, these powerful groups of people unified around a cause, this goal-driven behavior, you know, an, an environment with a powerful mentor uh, in front of, you know, leading it that everyone was was interested in. All this stuff kept stacking up to like, holy cow, that is, like, that's sports, yep. right? Maybe um, we, we've got this learning environment and it's 40 million people strong or more. Um, and so that was a light bulb moment, a very quick second light bulb then switched. And that was... Um, I wonder if, if we, if coaches and, and athletes recognize that one, and then the second, you know, the perhaps obvious second is, uh, I'm not sure we always use it to that end. You know, I don't, I'm not Definitely sure we this platform of athletics as an educational tool in the way that we, we could, and I think should. Right. Well, and it's interesting just reading about the work you're doing on your website. I, it got me thinking, cause I, I have three kids and I spend a lot of time on fields, courts, you know, all various types of venues. And it got me excited about how I'm spending my time for my kids. I mean, I, I like it really though, because I mean, I like it to keep, keep healthy, keep fit, you know, it's good to be with friends, that kind of thing. But um, it was neat for me to kind of look at it on a different level too, and, and think about what, what they're learning and how they're developing through this, that you really don't get in a classroom. It's just a right. totally different angle. Right. Right. You're, you're totally right. And, and, and I'm careful when I use this language uh, because I do take myself, I think, fairly seriously as an academic. I, I went to a went to Knox College, which I always have to plug because I think it's one of the elite liberal arts institutions out there. It's such a cool place in Galesburg, Illinois. Uh, then I went off to Northwestern University to get my first master's and then Harvard for my second master's. And I and like I care about this stuff. I want to learn. That said, I never, I, I've never showed up for a class, even if it was the class I was most passionate about, shaking with excitement the way that I might on a Friday night before a football game. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the, the dynamics of, of that learning environment are just different than, than anything else that, that we understand or know. Right. Could possibly know. So, well, and, the, and then the question comes, like, and then what do you use it for? I, you know, I think that was part of that second light bulb I mentioned is it's not that sports are good. Uh, it's that sports have power. In fact, one of our taglines is sports don't teach life lessons. We say sports don't teach life lessons. Uh, intentional teachers and coaches use sports as a platform to teach life lessons from, but it doesn't happen automatically. No one is, no one's that I know of shooting baskets in their driveway 
you know, in, in learning the life lessons, you know, the, the growth mindset and, and uh, the grit and all these sort of character would have become character staples, uh, empathy, all that stuff. They're not learning that through shooting baskets. They, they learn it um, in this powerful platform uh, within the, the culture that a coach has deliberately set up for his or her athletes. So, yeah. And it seems that. like just from what my sort of limited knowledge of sports and um it's not that limited but it's limited compared to you and um it seems like a lot of the coaches that are really held up as like the best coaches are these people that create these kind of environments that they use they're not just setting up like you know the plays or the picks or whatever they're they're creating relationships with people caring about their families caring about them as people not just as players is oh, yeah. that your experience? I mean, without question, you're, you're so you're right on, and that's that's one thing that I think some people, sometimes people from the outside see these things, these sort of ostensible successes, these quantifiable successes, and don't recognize what goes into them. It is possible to be successful without that, of course, but the people who are like good over a career, the, the great coaches, are doing that all the time. Just the name. Um, Oh, sure it does. You're down in Austin. The name Greg Pop- Popovich. That's uh, I actually. Yes, we love him, Pop. Yeah, I mean, Pop. pop it's hard not to, right? Right. It is. Uh, it is so interesting. What was it? It's uh, you know the book, The Culture Code. They talk about Popovich. There, there was a study released in. I'm going to butcher this if I try to get it exact. So I'll just say recently. There was a study released recently um, that was put out into the world, and it was. Uh, the, the headline when this study was released was Greg Popovich is impossible. And the storyline went something along the lines of um, based on the talent he's had over the course of a year, you know, you, you can predict based on talent and how, how uh, much, how many points you can expect from a, a person or a team, uh, what their winning percentage ought to be. Did that make sense? Yes. You know, I don't know how they put all the stats together. And then, um, and what they found was over the course of, I want to call it a 10 year span, the Spurs under the lead of Popovich were just like off the charts overachievers. Mm-hmm. And then when you dig into what's going on, it's exactly all that that you just mentioned. It's, it's, um, here's a human being that cares about other human beings right. and creates opportunities for thousands of touch points over the course of a season for those human beings to interact and get along. They, they eat together very regularly. Um, you know, like they just spend time together. He's, you know, he's metaphorically and actually putting his arm around people when in need or, you know, after, um, yeah, when in need, when they need him, whether it's at highs or lows. He's just a very human coach right. who also happens to know a whole lot about basketball. And that's, I think, where his success is derived. Right. I love that. So how do we get... <laughs> How do we get the fifth grade coach to be like Pop? No, but really though, so so people contact you as a as a person to help develop their programs, to bring their programs to this like higher level, to like tap the untapped potential of sports. Mm-hmm. So, what do people when you go into schools or when you go in and work with teams? What are they asking of you? What is what is sort of the um, agreement that of what they're expecting when you come and, and meet with them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the reason the Good Athlete Project is a project instead of an item is because there's no easy one-off answer. And sadly, I think, no offense to any fifth-grade coaches out there, but maybe too often people who aren't um, living the coaching life, um, I think they're hoping for the one-off 
response when it really doesn't exist. The truth is it's an ongoing conversation, series of habits, et cetera, et cetera. That you, you can never stop looking and being intentional. Mm. What we do when we go on site is we run what's called a character by design workshop. And we, uh, we have a certain core models, certain anchors, sort of staples where we try to meet the people where they are. And what that means is, you know, it's age appropriate, developmentally appropriate, contextually appropriate um, conversations happen to identify what the goals of the situation in place are and then the barriers to, to those goals in that situation. And then we troubleshoot much like a consulting firm would. Um, you know, we do the same for athletic organizations and i'll give an example um we got we've been called out to two places fairly recently one of them we were called into to uh sort of manage a disruptive population there was there was a um there was a team and i'm going to try to be kind of careful and not give sure here. I hope no. that's okay. i think that's um, wise actually there, yeah sure. <laughs> so but there was there was a team who, who really thought that they had a they were dealing with a disruptive population um, that needed to have discipline instilled in their lives. But you and I both know uh, with backgrounds in psychology and education that it's just not quite as easy as that. It's not a, we don't live in a carrot and stick world anymore. Um, human beings are complex and behavior change requires looking at that. But anyway, we're brought in to deal with a disruptive population. On the other hand, uh, or in this other situation, we were brought in, we are going in actually next month to deal with a population that has had like too much success or so they think. There's a sense of uh, sort of entitlement going on. They're coming off multiple championships, and and they think uh, behavior has been negatively affected through there. So mm-hmm. in both cases, we're going to um, do slightly different things with slightly different people. And and although we we have sort of a template that we work from, we actually call it the the anchor and tether method. We have our anchor uh, concepts that we try to relay. We have to let the rope out or pull it in and adapt and just site by site and that's I mean, and that's the hard work of it uh but that's also the really fun sort of puzzle and challenge right no i love that i mean it's sort of that i feel like one of those things i'm learning is that the things that are most interesting to me or you know the bigger issues that we struggle with there's not a one size fits all answer if there were we wouldn't all be struggling with it it would be like just you know that's right. That's right. do a question and answer and fill in the blanks um so yeah. I'm curious um, if there's a specific like theme that you've seen in a lot of the different. I, I think you listened to the um, my conversation with Octavius Bishop and the question I asked him, I, I sort of am curious with you is, um, you know, we all look at sports for for entertainment, for all different things. And I'm just wondering if there's any things that you're noticing sort of out in the field about how people are using sports and and what, where, where people are kind of missing the mark, like what, where do you see things kind of going south? And like, for example, people needing to have their child be like quarterback of the football team for their own sort of status related reasons. I don't know. That was just the first thing that came to my mind, but are you seeing things like that or what, what, what are you seeing out in the world? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think you probably are in tune, especially with kids the age that your kids are. I think you're probably in tune with a lot of, for lack of a better term, hypocrisy that goes on in sports. Um, and I don't mean that in any sort of cruel way. 
but one thing that we do, and, and we do talk to parent organizations as well. So mm. one thing that we do when we when we ha- start these conversations is we have this sort of um, this catalyst concept, and that is, does your behavior match your goal? Mm. And and you'd be amazed how many individuals, organizations, teams have find it uncomfortable to confront. Um, so like you mentioned, a parent wanting their 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 child to be the starting quarterback or, or the starting pitcher or whatever it might be. Um, but we often ask people to just reflect on that. And, and we don't bring any judgment from our side, mm-hmm. but we say, you know, what is the actual outcome you're hoping for? Is it, you know, is it for your child to be the starting quarterback or is it to have a positive um, relationship to competition and to stay safe and to make friends and to, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Again, no judgment, but whatever that is, um, we should identify it going into the season. It's actually uh, these parent workshops preseason have proven to be pretty fruitful, but identifying that going into the season allows us to sort of self-reflect as coaches and parents and, and identify where we're kind of missing the mark. Cause yes. we all listen, like, like, <laughs> I, I don't know how to say this. Like, I want to win too. Right. Um, I feel really privileged. I think the, the cool part about sports is there are winners and losers, and you can learn from your failures. And if you interact with it appropriately, and hopefully more often than not, the wins are deserved ones that were worked hard for. Um, but at what cost, sort of? Right. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to say that it doesn't matter who wins and loses. I think it does matter who wins and loses, if only because. Um, you know, only relative to one's own standards and then because successful or not successful outcomes then produce a feedback loop to reflect on the process that we all have identified as so important, right? So if, if we were to lose, what an incredible teaching point um, to kind of reflect on. Same thing if we win. Um, you know, after every win that I've, that I've had as a coach, um, we do a debrief with the team and we reflect on the components of the game that got us this outcome. What do we want to keep what do we want to move away from next week, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Anyway. No, I love that. One of my friends um, got me a pillow. I think it's Nelson Mandela because I she had posted this quote and it was like, I don't, I, right, I right. don't, what is it? I don't, I don't lose. I either, what is it? Win or grow. Is that right? I don't, so, no, I never that lose. sounds like a Nelson Mandela thing to say. Something He's like that. Um, yeah. So anyway, I have a pillow exactly. of that in the playroom because I have a couple of kids who are super competitive and, it's, I mean, it has its benefits, but then it's also, you know, figuring out how to harness it. And um, I love the the interview. I, I am forgetting the person's name, the one that um, the podcast episode that you had sent to me. Um, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Oh, she was amazing. But I love what she yes. said about um, her son's karate coach um, taught or I don't I don't think coach is the right word, but telling them to use their excitement and their nervous energy to get their butterflies in a row. I mean, I thought that was just the coolest symbolism and just sort of figuring out how to harness this competitive spirit, this energy into where you're trying to go. That, that, that's so right. And yeah, you're right. It was her, uh, her, her daughter's uh, karate coach. I think coach is right term there. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it's not like turn your back on the idea that you are, mildly anxious or stressed or whatever it might be. Uh, but yeah, it's get your butterflies flying in order. And you actually bring up a really good point. Um, something that continues to appear at the root of 
every single intervention that we've been on, any workshop or individual consultation, is um, stress. Stress in, in some form or other is like, I mean, that's there every single time. And sometimes it's named different things, but it's really, it's stress. So, uh, look, look, and if we think about it this way, stress as sort of the body's and the body's response to the difference between perceived obstacle and perceived ability to manage that obstacle, right? So <clears throat> a perceived obstacle uh, held up against our perceived ability to manage that obstacle, there's a differential there and, and we respond accordingly. Stress is a good thing. Stress is like why we're alive. It's why we've evolved as a species to, to you know, you and I talking cross country on a podcast. Mm. We grow in the face of stress, but that's only step one. It's stress and recover, right? You, you, you stress the system, uh, recover from whatever mild damage was, and we grow both physically and psychologically from that. Um, the complication comes in the form of uh, chronic stress. That's what people have heard about. When we, when we think of stress as like a bad four-letter word, that's really what we're referring to. It's not that you know our system was activated and cortisol was produced and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's that it's happening. It's recurring. And it's the fact that like uh, traffic stresses us out. And the number of missed uh, email responses stresses us out. And this like constantly stacking series of potential stressors. That seems to be uh, a real sort of concern. And I think where uh, Lisa and I kind of agree is that um, it's not about it's not about eliminating stress from our lives, but finding ways to manage it. You know, and, and sort of the definition of stress management, which is which is a real push in every realm, uh, is that you can't be without you can't have a life without stress and learn how to manage it. Right. If that makes sense. It so does. You don't want to eliminate stress from your life. You want to you want to be able to thrive in the face of challenge. You want to be able to uh, take on a full plate or a loaded schedule and and perform. Like those are the skills that you want. You want to be Tom Brady, who is you know uh, fourth quarter about to lead a comeback. Uh, they're constant stressors, but he's somehow able to keep calm and mm-hmm. cool, even so, and perform. The goat. So. <laughs> we're we're Tom we're 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 Tom Brady fans in this house. Um, yes, we we are. I know it's a controversial team, but we do have all of our Patriots swag. Um, no, I I I love that. Um, what's interesting to me, I was just talking to a woman this morning about her son, and he is an excellent um, high school athlete, excellent student, and just exhausted. But he is sort of a self-motivated, this is not something she's putting on him, like, you better keep it going. This is all self-motivated. And I think a lot of the best athletes, that's where it comes from. You can't really have a motivated parent and be an exceptional athlete, as far as my understanding, because it just, it has to come from within. But I guess, what do you recommend to to kids who are going through that, that are feeling just so run down by their own, it's like their own um, desire to achieve and succeed, but, but it, it can kind of have an underbelly of, of yeah. wearing you out. That's a, that's a really, that's a really good question. Uh, the first thing to acknowledge is that you're probably talking about 1% of the athletic population, which is, but, the, uh, but that just cause we find that, um, well, maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's more than one percent, but that certainly would be an elite quantity of people okay. for that. For but that's okay for that group of people. And you know, whether it's self-driven exhaustion or or outside whatever the pressures for 
that uh, exhaustion might be, I think it's important an important conversation to have because another thing that we've recognized is something that we call um, the paradox of high performance. And that is so often, especially in a high-achieving group like the one that you're mentioning, um, we, we, we neglect ourselves in the pursuit of a better version of ourselves. Mm. And, and things like I mentioned, stress and recover, those are two sides to this coin that, that you, know, you can't neglect either one of them. So um, I'll use the weight room for an example. A lot of my background comes in strength and conditioning. Um, if you stress a muscle, right, if you tax a muscle, you must let it recover. When it does, all sorts of incredible things happen. Um, the muscle changes. You, literally, like the um, hormonal composition of your body changes, at least momentarily, to meet the demands of the stress you just put on it. Um, you know, you get faster, you get stronger, you get more resilient, depending on how you've trained, depending on what the stressor was. But the recovery is essential. And kind of going down this thought line, the first thing I would say to that student is let's have a talk, let's look at your day see what time management looks like and then see if there's an opportunity for rest that we can find. Because I'll tell you, I think, and you probably recognize this as a, as a parent and a motivated human being that, um, sleep is just such an essential though completely overlooked part of performance. Um, and, and you need to look no further than like, just picture the last time you were on three or four hours of sleep. Right. Right. Like what, what were some of the symptoms of that? Yeah. I, you know, and you go down that list of symptoms and then you think about how many um, athletes like the ones you're talking about or even just professionals and parents are neglecting their sleep and then trying to perform in the face of, you know, irritability, um, cognitive fog, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I love that there is more focus on that now, sleep. I feel like it used to be sort yeah. of considered a badge of honor, like, oh, I only get two hours of sleep, like I'm kind of a badass, you know? And now I think that there is more conversation out there around the importance of sleep and that it really mentally affects you if you're not getting enough of it. I think it's just, it's interesting because when I was talking to her, I could relate with this child, not because I was an incredible athlete or, I mean, but I worked, I, I participated in sports a lot and I also worked really hard at school and was constantly worn out. And yeah. my life is much better now, I'd say, because I've sort of pulled back from that intensity level. Having right. said that, it really fuels other people. You know what I mean? Where that, that that's how it's almost like that's how you're wired. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there are certain people that are drawn to that kind of intensity. And it's just like, how do you take care of yourself when that is your wiring? Yeah. I, uh, again, I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I'll tell you, I identify with it as well. Um, I, it, it all comes down to self-reflection mm. at some point. Yes. Um, there's a book out there that like absolutely changed my life. It's, it's, um, self-reliance It's by Emerson. And I, I come back to that as like a source text for like everything I do. Um, cause at some point, like you are what you've got at some point. And that point, um, could be dramatic. It could be in the face of very real life challenges, you know, that, that many, many people are going through, uh, or it could be as simple as like turning off Netflix at 11 o'clock because it's time to go to bed or right. putting your phone away. But you are the thing that's going to have to drive, uh, whatever the behavior is forward. And that's the only lasting part of it too. Right. Um, 
And I think that's a great message to families because I think parents, coaches too, teachers put so much pressure on themselves to fix kids, you know? And I think at some point it's like getting to be old enough where you can start knowing who you are and making choices for yourself, you know? And, and that's the hard part. I mean, as a parent, I want to be able to help my kid get through whatever they need to get through. And I can by just kind of being around. But I think you're right. Ultimately, the change comes from within. It's like Michael Jackson, starting with the man in the mirror. You can quote Emerson. I'll just quote Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's like the same vein. Uh, I think, no, that, well, there you go. Two very real high achievers, important figures in our society. Mm-hmm. Emerson and Jackson. Yep. Uh, I, yeah, I love it because you're, you're totally right. And I get that instinct, you know, like, um, I'm lucky to have who, you know, no offense to you. I'm sure you are wonderful, but I think I've got the best mom in the world. I just love her to death. She's amazing. Um, and I know that she wants the absolute best for me. I know that she also doesn't want me living in her basement at 47. Right. Right. So, so with that in mind, um, you, know, you sort of have to equip the people that you love to be self-reliant. Right. Um, and I don't make, mean to make a farce out of that. I, I mean it very, very specifically. Um, when, you know, and you can go moment to moment when you talk about character education within athletics, hypothetically. And you're talking about you know, what happens to the kid who, um, who gets elbowed on the court or in the lunch line or whatever. And you know, in, in that split-second reactive moment, it's not apparent or uh, any sort of um, outside figure telling them what to do or not to do, mm-hmm. he or she is going to have to default to only their own ne- neural networking and behave accordingly. Right. So teaching for that is absolutely essential. It's funny because after um, I was learning more about what you do and I, it got me thinking, so stick with me because this is kind of might be long, but it hopefully, like make, it hopefully makes sense. Um, I played basketball in grade school and a little bit in high school. I wasn't amazing, but I was pretty good in in grade school. But then, you know, the competition increases and then you're not as amazing. Um, But I, I played a team, I think it was eighth grade. And this girl was amazing. She made every shot. No one could stop her. And then we played, and my dad um, was an eighth grade basketball coach. He like helped me, like basically studied her moves. And then the next we played her again at the end of the season and I completely shut her down and it was great. And I still hold that. That was like eighth grade as, and we didn't even win the game. I think we lost by like two points, but it wasn't a shutout like it was at the beginning. And I remember telling this story. Somebody had asked me in a job interview right after college about, you know, like things that had changed my mindset or victories or successes that I'd had. And I talked about that experience and they kind of looked at me weird. Like, that was in eighth grade. Like, that's kind of like, I could just feel the energy was not supportive. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was not like, oh, that was a great story. They, but I still hold that as like a example of sort of that growth mindset mentality of like, this was not happening. And then I worked my butt off and it was so much better. And it's just funny that still, and now at the age I am now, I think when I was in my twenties and getting that job interview, I felt kind of foolish for saying that, but I think I would still say it now, but with more conviction, you know what I mean? Cause it's like, don't give me that look like, no, I'm being serious. Like that is a real thing, you know? Um, and my dad still talks about it too. Like it's not, we're not just making this up, you know? Um, so anyway, 
I just, uh, I think that it's, it's cool as we get older to be able to sort of look back and see those moments that were more impactful and kind of have more conviction in knowing how much they mattered. If that makes sense. My, I think I told you my husband um, was a swimmer and he talks at length about one of these coaches that just changed his life, you know, and and he's a grown man with three kids and, and he still looks back on that person and the impact that he made on his life. Um, so it is, it, it's real. And um, I think I love what you're doing to try to sort of help people acknowledge the power that they have, that they're maybe not yeah. using. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you're right. Totally. That's, I mean, that's step one. And first of all, I'm really excited to meet your husband um, when I'm down in Texas, because it, it sounds like, we will have a lot to talk about. Um, I think a lot of people have that story about the coach that they remember. And sometimes it's not positive to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, but, th- but someone will stand out. And I, and again, you and I both take academics seriously uh, and, and as people should, but I'm not sure I ever was affected that way by a history teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about that platform that's so emotionally driven and, and group. Or, anyway, uh, we go down that all, all day too, but uh, what you bring up from your eighth grade basketball season, I mean, I would go back into that interview. If they didn't give you the job, they're crazy because that's ex- what you're talking about is that's exactly the sort of lesson we want to transfer forward. If you could take, if you could take you, you and your father's approach to that situation in basketball and transfer it to other areas of your life, you are, you're then tapping into what, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the researcher Anders Ericsson, uh, would call deliberate practice, right? Uh, th- that sort of, that analytic, thoughtful approach um, embedded with sort of uh, outcome-based feedback loops, like that sort of deliberation and intentionality will yield positive outcome outcomes uh, across, you know, whether it's, whether it's um, athletics or academics or relationships or any sort of job that sort of process, that sort of deliberate intentional process is huge. Right. So I, I would go back to those people. What was this job? I for? should, I should. No, it's actually, it's funny how life is just twisty. I interviewed for all, I feel like I never really got good prep on how to interview because I just, I was like, I'm great. Of course people are going to like me. Well, I interviewed for all these advertising jobs and didn't get a one. And then I ended up becoming a social worker. So, but I think that that was probably God had his hand in that one where it was like the door was closed for a reason. Um, but anyway, there you go. sidebar. There you go. Um, so I'm wondering if there's anything that I haven't asked you about that you were kind of hoping you'd be able to tell me about. Um, no, that's, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I family brain. I was, I've been thinking a lot about concussions recently. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I don't really have an agenda. I was just excited to have conversations. Well, good. We could I talk, know. We could talk about concussions all day if you want. Would you let, would you let your child play um, tackle football? Would I let my child play tackle football? Right. Because uh, I have a child. I don't who, have a child. Your hypothetical child. But my hypothetical child. I try to, I get asked that question a lot, and here's as close as I can get to an answer. Um, my sister is... Um, Actually, she is having her first child in March. That child is going to be a boy. Um, my sister was an all-state field hockey player and captain of her college field hockey team. Her husband is a six-five uh, college lacrosse player. There's no question that at whatever high school this kid goes to, 
he will be recruited to play football. Um, so I, and, and my sister is like, maybe the most important. She's like my best friend. She's incredible. She's one of the best human beings I know. So that kid will mean as much to me as like my own kid. Right. Um, so I, I think of it through that filter because, because the point of asking that question is to make it as sort of like first person poignant as it can possibly be. Um, would you put someone that you love, uh, in that environment? And I would say it is completely dependent on whether the kid wants to play or not. That's like the biggest thing to me. For sure. And then how the environment is cultivated. Mm. But if the question was, would I keep that kid from the environment because I was afraid of not concussions, but more regularly CTE, the answer is no, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't be worried about it. And, and I'm saying that I I really do try to be thoughtful about all this stuff. I'm saying that not like, I don't have any stake in the game. I've got no stock in the NFL. Um, I do think by the way that the NFL, if you, if you consider intensity and duration as risk factors, then the NFL is just in a, I mean, you are talking about the far end of the spectrum. It's point, right. I did the math not too long ago. It's like point zero one percent of the population of football players will ever make it to the NFL. And then the number that plays, you know, like a decade or more is, is it's, I hate to say it. It's just, it's like negligible right. from uh, a greater societal perspective. But here's, here's why I say that. Um, and I got some of these numbers offhand just because I'm, I'm actually writing a paper uh, right now about it. Um, there are 100 million Americans who are at the risk of cognitive dysfunction because 100 million Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Mm. That's right now. And um, I can't remember her name, but the she's the president of the CDC she like it says very explicitly we've got an epidemic we got to do something about this right okay one way to do that is through diet and exercise one way to encourage diet and exercise is through sports uh i don't think we can chip away at the platform of athletics um for, for in fear of this other thing and let me also say this cte i don't know this is probably not something people rec- know about but like like i just mentioned 100 million Americans, diabetic or pre-diabetic, we have 300 confirmed cases of CTE in existence. Um, so even though it's it's like something that we need to be looking really, really hard at and being very thoughtful about and, you know, and limiting the risk factors for our young people especially, it's just not an open and shut case like so many people are suggesting it are. In fact, there it is. Um, in fact, the, the New York Times have has written more They've published more articles about CTE than there are confirmed cases of CTE. It's, it, we've kind of gotten caught up in this buzz. And if I can, I, I don't mean to rant here. I'm sorry, but this is a. No, I care. I mean, this yeah. is making me feel better. Yeah. My son's so, going to play tackle next year. So this is making me feel good. Sure. Well, yeah. So, it, well, and I'll say this. Um, if we believe that CTE is what it is, and there's actually some conversation whether that certain spindle of tau protein that appears posthumously in the brains of people who they believe to have what's called CTE, if that is unique to um, to contact sports or if it exists in the population on the whole because the sample size is so incredibly skewed. Um, so there's a conversation there. But let's go ahead and assume CTE exists. That's what we're afraid of. A concussion you heal from just like anything else. Um, you know, the, the problem would be a concussion that doesn't heal that lends itself to disease later on in life. Right. 
So if we if we say let's let's not focus on CTE, let's focus on eliminating the risk. The risk being concussions. Mm-hmm. Fine. Then you start to look at the numbers for concussions, and it's like uh, at the NCAA level, for example, the number one um, sport that is at risk per exposure right now, at least based on a, I believe it was a 2018 study, is women's ice hockey. Hmm. So women's ice hockey is first. Believe it or not, spring football is second. Then tied for third is, uh, let's see, I think it was men's hockey and women's soccer were tied for third with, I think it was 0.41 concussions per 1,000 exposures. Uh, and then fall football. And then like this just list of things which include wrestling and uh, martial arts and right. field hockey and all these things. Um, so what I'm ultimately getting to is the fact that like it's not necessarily a football concern. The fact is people get injured, period. People get injured in athletics, period. Right. If we start to dismantle athletics on the whole, which is something that we would have to do if we consider moving away from football, um, then I think we're, we'd get we'd be in a crisis that we don't even recognize just just how bad that would be. If we took organized sports out of society to avoid concussions, I mean, we're going downhill fast. We're all wrapped in bubble wrap. We're all wrapped in bubble wrap. Yeah. Probably that hundred million Americans with diabetes and prediabetes skyrockets. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. It is. It's, I mean, it's just interesting to uh, uh, just sort of, pull back and see where some of, cause I think a lot of these reactions are fear-based, you know, and yeah. it's just, we don't stop like driving cars. My husband got a concussion in a car accident, you know? So it's, um, yeah. it, we don't stop driving cars after that. Um, so anyway, sure. um, so the last question I usually ask people on the podcast is, you know, with all of this good work that you're doing, what is something that you do to help take care of yourself? to keep yourself healthy so that you can sort of go out in the world and do this good work. Yeah. Um, I was ready for that. And I think we already touched on it. Um, I have started to prioritize. I've always been a fairly optimistic person. I think that is in large part due to my mom and my sister who I've already mentioned. Um, I love my dad dearly too. I wouldn't say that I got my optimism from him, Mm -hmm. but I love him. Uh, but I've always been fairly optimistic I find myself, I find it easier to be optimistic, productive, engaged, and helpful to others when I've slept well. So I would say in the last like two or three years, um, maybe not quite three, and to be fair, not not even all the time now, but I've started to reprioritize sleep in my life. And w- one thing that I that kind of kicked off my professional career was the development of a strength program at Nutria High School, just north of Chicago. Um, where we took a, a it, the, the school is 4,100 people with very successful athletics and academics. We started a strength program there. Um, I started with 80 people in a room. That strength program has now grown to about 1,400 students, bigger than most high schools. Um, and it happened over a relatively short amount of time, and the results have been fantastic. In the, in the growing stages of that, knowing what I know now, I sort of reflect back and, and think, like, you know, I used to pride, you mentioned like the machismo. I, I used to pride myself on being one of the first ones in and one of the last ones to leave and to getting that thing off the ground. And in the winter, I don't even see the sun all day practically. Um, and I think, honestly, I think some level of that grind was necessary to get it off the ground. But as I reflect, I'm like, how by six o'clock that night to my last, you know, two or three teams that were coming in, 
um, you know, I, I probably wasn't as good. So I started to reprioritize my own wellness, sleep being uh, at the core of that. Do you have any hacks or tricks that you use to sort of make sure that you're you're following through? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yes, and and um, I took them from people who are actually on our podcast, the Good Athlete Podcasters. We've had some researchers on have talked about this specifically. So I've just sort of kind of tried to pull it all together. One thing that I started to recognize was that you, you got to be thoughtful about your sleep opportunity. So people are like, when you say I got seven hours of sleep last night, um, I wonder if you did or if you got in bed at midnight and woke up at seven mm. and your alarm was for seven. Um, so sleep, how long, you, uh, how many people kind of, you know, settle into their sleep for 10, 20 minutes. Um, that was something to consider. So making sure I just, you know, I, I take care of my time management. I know when I have to wake up, I sort of count backwards. I, I've actually leaned on um, eight hours and 20 minutes is the sleep window I try to create for myself, uh, knowing that I'm not always going to go to sleep right when I hit the pillow. Right. That's a big one. Um, temperature is one that I didn't think about a lot before. Uh, you know, but keeping the room cool. I take a shower before bed. Um and I keep the room very cool. I get under covers. Here's one that might be interesting. Weight. So, like, the weight that is on you, like um, a weighted blanket or multiple blankets, mm-hmm. or some people like to wear hooded sweatshirts to bed, that can be a very comforting um, way to fall asleep. And then the biggest one, you probably know this all too well, but um, screen time is, like, the ultimate killer of, of good sleep hygiene. From what we found, go to bed later, you spend a lot of time at the back end of your day doing nothing um, and then kind of pay for it the next day when you've got 45 minutes less sleep uh, than you wish you would have. No, I love that. And I love that it's it's not just a um, old people's thing now, sleep. I feel like it's not, it's <laughs> yeah. not, you know, doesn't, it's not considered lame to be talking no. about like wanting to sleep. Um, no. Well, I have loved talking to you and I love the work that you're doing. I think it's such a great, I mean, it's just a great opportunity because it's something that people are doing. And so to take the, the power of it and sort of harness it for some good, not some good, lots of good, you know, more good than it's currently being used for. So I love the stuff that you're working on and people can find you at the good athlete project.com and uh, yeah. Just uh, no the, so just goodathleteproject.com. Okay, and your podcast, The Good Athlete Project, is on iTunes, and it's great. Yep. I'm really enjoying listening to it. It's fun, isn't it? It's fun asking people whatever you want to ask, and I'm like, this is great. I think I always wanted, I thought I would always want to write, but writing, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just never seemed to happen, but talking, I can do. Um, well, <laughs> I, and, you're, and you're good at it, so. Thank you, you and I, I look forward to meeting you when you're in Austin. I look forward to it as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. I love the work Jim Davis is doing, and you can learn more about The Good Athlete Project on his website, goodathleteproject.com, or Instagram, which is coach4kindness. And I just, it really truly gives me sort of more energy and um, excitement for the sports my kids are involved in right now, and just thinking about even my own practices of um, sports in my past and how it's helped me become who I am. Um, it just, it's, it, it 
I love hearing more about sort of that, um, the potential of sports to do so much good. So thank you, Jim, for joining us on the podcast. And thank you to Game Day Media for producing the podcast.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.